Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. There's a podcast I really like, but that I've started to have some problems with. But yeah, the issue I've suddenly got with this unnamed podcast and its host is that it used to be one of my favorite shows, but I haven't really been listening to it for for the past few months, except for maybe a few minutes here and there, because the host, in his opening monologues, has strayed from the the sort of cultural commentary that once made the show so great. And now it's just gotten very navel-gazy, but not, not in like an interesting way. Literally, all he's doing is talking about his youth. Like, it's not about ideas or, or even really investigating his youth. The show is now just about him and about his tastes and stuff, which, you know, it's your podcast and you can do whatever you want with it. I'm really, I'm really not complaining, and I, I certainly don't mean to suggest that he's doing a bad job at it. I mean, as far as reminiscence for the sake of reminiscence goes, his stuff is tops. But I guess it's just maybe now that I've got a show of my own that I'm like, shit, I'd hate for my thing to turn into that thing. Because what his show is essentially becoming is a sort of self-stroking vanity project where he just monologues about his childhood and how everything was better in the 70s, which, again, is totally fine. But in that case, it's very cl- he's very clearly not concerned with satisfying an audience so much as just expressing himself. And there's an argument to be made that a, a person's art is more authentic and raw if it doesn't concern itself with catering to an audience and just focuses instead on, like, the edification of the self, an, an artist in conversation with her own soul. I, I, I personally would not argue the supremacy of that approach, but the argument can be made. But one of the things that I'm afraid might infect my work with the very worst parts of his work is if I, in my own monologues, start riffing at length about my childhood in the same sort of starry-eyed way that he does. But, because it is still Halloween season, and because I wanted to have one more Halloween-themed episode, I've decided that I'm going to talk for a while about a certain thing from when I was a kid. Which, if, if there's some very obvious bullshit in this episode that I'm misremembering from the 90s, please just go ahead and call me out on it. I, I know I should have probably done some research here, but... There is, there is also, I think, something special about the wrongness of childhood recollections in the sense that the facts are kind of beside the point. What it, what it does is it reveals the mythology that the person has made for themselves. And that's a little hypocritical. I know since I'm here talking shit about that other podcaster for looking at his childhood through rose-colored glasses, and but here I am saying that, like, my rose-colored glasses are of a finer hue of rose or something. I mean, look, I can, I can stress about this into the mic for a really long time. Let me not do that. I'm going to talk for a minute about something from when I was a kid and you can you can listen or skip ahead and frankly it's 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 not even really about my childhood that much it's about it's about UPN 33 When I was seven and my brother was ten, we got set up for the first time in separate bedrooms. My own room, which had previously been the guest room, was pretty much bare except for the bed and a desk and a bookshelf, but An added perk that I hadn't anticipated, a a gift from my parents, up against the wall, settled like some heavy, mute, sentient thing on the pale, knotted carpet, was the oldest TV in the house. And now, it was mine. There was a black plastic panel running vertically down the right-hand side of it, and the number of the channel you were watching appeared in green digits from a little window in the top of that panel. The only three channels that weren't indecipherably fuzzy were channels 35, which I think was a Christian channel called PAX, P-A-X, and then there was WB39 and UPN33. UPN33 was my shit. Mainly because, when I first moved into that bedroom, UPN was in the habit, every October, of devoting the entire weekend to -to back-to-back broadcasting of R-rated horror movies from the 1980s and 1990s. They censored out virtually all of the sex and nudity, but they left in virtually all of the violence and gore. And because it was too expensive to license the better, earlier installment of these horror franchises, UPN seemed to only ever show the distant sequels. Leprechaun 3 and Leprechaun 4, the ones that were set respectively in Las Vegas and outer space, were featured prominently on UPN. UPN never showed Friday the 13th, but they often showed Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, which incidentally came out in 1989 and might could therefore have been a reference to Leonard Cohen's 1988 song, First We Take Manhattan, Then We Take Berlin. The only thing they played more than Friday the 13th Part 8 
was Friday the 13th Part 9, Jason Goes to Hell. You never saw Nightmare on Elm Street while watching UPN, but you often saw Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, or Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6, colon, Freddy's Dead, colon, The Final Nightmare. Hey, wanna watch Hellraiser? Fuck you, go to Blockbuster. Wanna watch Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth? How about Hellraiser 4, Bloodline? Cause UPN will hook that shit up. Hellraiser 4, Bloodline, incidentally, is the one that takes place in both the 18th and 22nd century because... Of course it would. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 and The Dentist Part 2 and Candyman 2 Farewell to Flesh, this was the kind of shit that I grew up on. Interspersed with commercials for Bally's Total Fitness and Jenny Craig and Miss Cleo. These October weekends, thanks to UPN, were the most exhilarating months of my life. All day Saturday, all day Sunday, or, or almost all day Saturday. It was all day... I would watch these horror movies all day on those few blessed Saturdays where I didn't have to play fucking Little League Baseball, which was one of the- it's still one of the most resounding nightmares of my life. I fucking sucked at baseball so hard. Every time somebody hit the ball, I would duck. I, just awful. And I was so- th this still confounds me. I was really, really bad. I, I mean, I, I argued my badness as an excuse for being excused from the whole game, but I was also angry at how bad I was. And I think it was because I knew I couldn't get better. I knew that I would never in a million years put in the necessary time and effort to become a better baseball player. And so it was like, it was having to go every day into a situation where you have to confront a shortcoming that you'll never surpass. My standing in the company of boys my own age who knew how to hit a baseball was like hanging out with kids who could fly. It was like I was trying to play Quidditch from the ground. I was so angry. At, at the end of the season, the coach gave each player a baseball with their nickname on it. And my dad still jokes about how mine was uh, Mr. Intensity. I struck out every time I went up to the plate. Every time I went up to the plate. And for some reason, I was always surprised to have struck out. It was like some Promethean wound that just kept reopening. I would go up to the plate and I would swing the bat like you would you would think you would think a ring of ghosts was closing in on me. I swung the bat like I was deflecting something. When Mr. Intensity was at the plate, people flinched for fear that the bat would fly into the stands, not the ball. I missed every ball that was thrown at me by at least two feet. And afterwards, baffled by the fact that I still could not fly, I would go into the dugout and I would hurl my bat at the fence and get scorned by the coach for saying that the pitcher was a fucking asshole. And then after threatening to tell my dad that he'd heard me curse and telling me that he didn't want to hear another peep out of me, I would just pack my mouth full of bazooka bubble gum and fold my arms and chew it and fume. And I was somehow even worse at playing in the field than I was at the bat. And I know now that the coaches knew I fucking sucked because they positioned me way out in left field. And why did they position me in left field? It's because everybody in Little League is like 35 pounds. They can't hit the fucking ball that far. And thank God they can't because today, just like back then, my immediate response whenever somebody throws something to me is I just, I just wince. I would just stand in the outfield pacing for an hour, absolutely fucking miserable and compulsively checking my SpongeBob SquarePants wristwatch that I'd gotten from a Burger King Big Kids meal earlier that week to see how much longer it would be before I could go home and watch Jason take Manhattan. In sixth grade, I started seeing a therapist named uh, Dr. Huff, whose fingertips on his right hand were curled backward at the top knuckles, arthritic. I was seeing him because my third grade teacher had called my mom one day to tell her that I had collected a pretty impressive repertoire of nervous tics, and that it was hard for her to teach while Mr. Intensity stared her down with his weird rhythmic blinking. I saw Dr. <laughs> I saw Dr. Huff for a few years and he was really cool. Um, I remember my mom looking really hesitant and tense when Dr. Huff told her in front of me that she should let me go see Freddy vs. Jason and Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake in theaters. As he said this, my mom was looking at me while I sat there blinking in threes and bouncing my shoulders and, and I, I would make this perpetual sound with my lips. I looked like Tweak from South Park. I looked like the kind of kid who would have a laminated card in his breast pocket that said, please do not show me horror movies. <laughs> but my mom, to her credit, agreed to let me go. For both of those movies, which were the first two R-rated movies I would ever see on the big screen, my mom sent me to the theater in the company of my brother, who was three years older, and who at the age of 14 or 15 had a more refined beard and physique than most adult men, and therefore had no trouble passing as my guardian. And while I'm sure that my mom kind of pitched the idea to him as an assignment, like go make sure your brother doesn't have a breakdown, I know that he was interested in this kind of thing too when we were growing up, if only because these horror movies were kind of forbidden in our home, and our parents gave us the impression that, they would, that we would be in trouble if we were ever caught watching them. Anyway, so in both Freddy vs. Jason and Dawn of the Dead, there were scenes where I walked out of the theater terrified. In Freddy vs. Jason, it was the scene where Jason is slaughtering a bunch of high schoolers during a party in a cornfield, and in Dawn of the Dead, it was the scene where a dude handcuffs his pregnant and newly zombified wife to a bed and helps her to give birth to their also newly zombified baby. Both times that I walked out to collect myself, my brother Rudy, in betrayal of his normally disinterested older brother coolness, w would come out and he would console me, and then he would usher me back into the theater. 
He told me to just cover my eyes if I was getting freaked out. To cover my eyes just as my dad had done when we were kids, when he would pile my brother and me on the couch to watch Terminator 2 or Predator or Aliens, which we watched over and over and over again. I know it seems weird to tell people that you're enchanted and oddly comforted by intense movies, by brutal action violence, but I think a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that this is the kind of thing that lots of fathers and brothers bond over. I literally cannot see Arnold Schwarzenegger kill somebody on screen without flashing back to sitting on my dad's lap on a Saturday afternoon with my mom in the kitchen and the whole house smelling like arroz con pollo, and then my dad clamping his hand over my eyes during the scene when Arnold, as the T-800, cuts the flesh and muscle from his arm to reveal the metal endoskeleton underneath. I never told my dad how clearly I could see that shit through the cracks in his fingers, but 20 years later it hardly seems worth mentioning. Also, weirdly, I was so respectful of his censorship that I would often close my eyes, even when I could see the action through his fingers, because I was afraid that he was right in thinking that I would be traumatized by whatever was unfolding. The other night, on Wednesday, I went to Tea and Poets in South Miami to do some stand-up, but I popped into Splitsville first uh, to get a PBR. I sat at the bar by myself, and I saw that, up on the TV, they'd turned the station to the Sci-Fi Channel. I sat down just as Gremlins 2 was ending, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D was beginning. Between the two movies, they showed a dark, pumpkin-colored animation of zombies lumbering through a road, told us that we were in the middle of a month-long horror movie marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel, and the nostalgia I felt was immediate and intense, and I could so easily have gone on sitting there all night, just binged on a long line of cheap beer with cheap horror movie sequels and commercials galore, and, and the runtime sped up by a few seconds and crudely edited sex scenes. But alas, I finished my beer, and I left. I went up on stage, and I did my set, and then I went and I got hookah with a friend, and we talked about the current moment, and the future. The past being a thing, I think, to open up only occasionally, not at the beginning of every fucking podcast. The story about Clarissa Kay goes that she's tormented day and night with all stripes of baffled sadness on account of she can't make heads or tails of how how it's possible that she could have all the things in life that a person could ostensibly need, and yet she's still just always incredibly sad, and she can't say why. Which, needless to say, the inability to explain the sadness only ends up compounding the sadness. She's about 16 years old. She lives at home with her mom, who's super religious, but she herself personally is not. She tags along with her mom to church because, at first, she just wants to keep the peace, and it's easier to just go to church than it is to deal with all the shit she'll get for skipping out. But something else to know about Clarissa Kay is that she's kind of precociously self-aware at 16, and without making a big deal of it, she's got this intuitive appreciation at the moment for how all of this stuff that's going on in her head is maybe cusping on something like irredeemably serious, if you catch my drift. And she's able to say to herself in a low-key way that, hey, it's probably not a good idea to sit alone in the house all morning while I'm like this. Because, like I said, she's she's living here in the grip of a sadness that's more than sadness. And while things haven't quite gotten to the point where like, she's looking at razor blades and licking her lips or, or fashioning little nooses out of the paper tubes that her drinking straws come in, still, she knows that it's nothing to fuck with. So she's going to church with her mom and twiddling her thumbs through the homily, totally absorbed in her thoughts and her sadness, when it occurs to her that maybe she should try journaling about this shit, or chronicling it in poetry, just make some art. Anyway, so she goes home and she starts scribbling all of her deepest, darkest thoughts, or at least to the best that she can understand them. And it feels good. She's not, she's not trying to be a great writer or anything. It's, it's more of a howl-in-the-night type shit. She's just happy to have made something. But then she shares it on the internet and people start saying things. Most of which is flattering and commiserative and encouraging, but there's that element that's like, what, have you never heard of a comma? Which isn't necessary, really, but it's the internet, Wild West. A week goes by, and on Sunday she's back at church with her mom, and she's she's thinking again about sublimating her lonesome, angry thoughts into some kind of creative energy, but she's also thinking about Kafka Sauce 69, or whatever the guy's username was, and she's wondering if maybe his criticism was legit, and if she isn't just setting herself up for embarrassment by even trying to write. Still, she's thinking that it, it might be worth taking another stab at it. But so it's Sunday again, and she's sitting in a pew by herself to think this over after the sermon, when suddenly this dude in a salmon-colored suit comes, and he sits down next to Clarissa Kay, and he says, Hey girl, what's on your mind? Type shit. And she says, Nothing, not much, just thinking. And he says, Thinking about what? And Clarissa's not unaccustomed to this kind of thing, and she knows what this guy is probably getting at, and how she ought to be on her guard against his motives. But she's also, at this particular moment, feeling a bit like an overstuffed champagne bottle, emotionally, with the cork wedged just so precarious into the bottleneck and ready to pop off at any second. 
And so here now is this dapper dude all of a sudden, he's wearing a suit, and he's asking her, with what sounds like serious interest, about what's going on in her head. And when she tells him that it's nothing, he asks about the nature of that nothingness, which literally nobody else in her life is asking. And so she spills the beans. She says, I'm feeling lots of feelings, mister. It's something like that. And the older man listens. He nods. He does things with his eyebrows when she gets to the really sad parts. And then, his favorite part, he opines. He pours his eloquence into her ear. Something, something, commodious vicus, he says. And Clarissa is smitten. She gets his phone number, and there's lots of sixes in the phone number because he's the devil. And they go back and forth texting night and day, night and day for a week. And the dude is asking all the right questions. Uh, he's, he's edging her, he's, he's pushing her towards new ways of looking at herself. Clarissa starts writing poems about their conversations, and the poems are really good. The people on the internet say so. And when finally it's Sunday again, they cross paths at church, and she's all on her toes about, oh, I found the greatest guy, whatever, whatever. But when she sees him again in, the, in church, she finds that the salmon suit dude isn't so demure as last time. He finds her alone in a pew, and he, he comes right at her, and he says, hey, here's a proposition. She says, wait, so we're not friends? And then he tells her with a laugh, oh, I'm friends with everybody, believe me. Take a sip of this here green drink that I've brought along with me to church in this crimson flask of mine, and I'll give you what I've got the utmost powers of expression. I'll help you to explain your troubles to yourself in the most lyrical way, Shakespeare-type shit. And Clarissa wavers for a bit, and she says, well, what's, what's in the drink? He says, vodka. She says, what kind? He says, pinnacle. She goes, ew, no, of course not. He says, it's sour apple. She says, oh, true. The question of whether Clarissa sips the drink because she wants him to like her, or because she's actually titillated by the offer, or, or because she digs apples or some other dumbass reason, is one of those things that she'll go on asking herself for decades, until probably, at some point, on a tranquil Sunday morning in her 60s or her 70s, the thought will cross her mind while she's looking at her grandkids, and she'll shrug. Because the reasons behind a misfortune can really only matter for so long. It's like asking yourself what was the cause of the fire in which you lost everything. Eventually, all that matters is the ash, and the grace with which you clear it and rebuild. Similarly, the point here is that she drinks it. And what happens? Well, she goes home and, despite the absurdity, she puts pen to paper and she tries it out. Born from the sparks of a redwood fallen type poetic shit. Very clipped bits of verse that sound kind of maudlin and like capital R romantic to the ears of some, perhaps, but to Clarissa, this shit is rich. It feels to her that this is exactly the right wording for what she's got going on inside. At one point, the joy is just too much, and she takes her notebook out to the living room where her mom, after a Xanax and two scotches, or maybe it was the other way around, her mom is sitting with a glossy gaze in front of the tube, and she says, Mommy, look! And she hands her the moleskin journal. Mom blinks a few times, and she takes the notebook, and she considers the open page, squints at it. Clarissa, don't fuck with me. She hands it back. Clarissa is crestfallen. She says, you don't like it? Her mom gestures in a zombified way toward the page. There's nothing there. Clarissa looks down at the page. She sees her writing, and she says, Mommy, you're blind. But then her mom gets mad in the way that she seldom gets mad, and she makes it abundantly clear that whether or not there are indeed words on that page, she cannot see them. Which Clarissa figures is a result of either the scotch or the Xanax or the pairing of the two. And so she hugs the notebook to her chest and she takes it back into her room. And in her solitude there, she thinks that maybe she should share this poetry on Instagram. So she lays the book out on her desk and she snaps a picture of it. Frames the shot up perfect on her desk, a little candle burning beside it. Very artful shit. So she shoots her shot, the shutter clicks, and then she looks at the photo and sees a blank page. She tries it again and again, and nothing comes through. So she writes something else on a different page, and then she shoots a photo of it. Nothing. And thus go the terms of her deal with the devil. Blessed with the gift of expressing herself on the page like fucking Shakespeare himself, or so Clarissa's made to feel, the downside is that nobody will ever see it. Nobody will ever hear it. Her gift, for eternity, is the ability to appreciate, in solitude, the poetry of her own private self. Meaning, perhaps, that the devil, though shady and secretive and kind of just casually bizarre, is maybe not himself such a bad man after all. Gay Talese is a celebrated journalist in his 80s, and in 2016, he released a book called The Voyeur's Motel. It's a work of nonfiction, and it's about a guy who owned a motel, I think in Aurora, Colorado. This guy, whose last name was Foos, F-O-O-S, was, as the title suggests, a voyeur. And so, 
From a crawl space in the attic, Mr. Foos would hover over the motel's many rooms, and he would spy on his guests through these custom-made air vents that he'd installed in the ceiling. What he was mostly hoping to find among them was sex, and judging from his diary, that's mostly what he found. There's a scene in the book where he's up there in the attic, and he's jerking off to the sight of one of his guests sucking her boyfriend's dick, and as he's masturbating, he's kind of bringing himself to the edge of orgasm, and then reeling back, you know, trying to make it last. Until, finally, fatefully, Mr. Foos comes at the same time as the dude getting a blowjob eight feet down. But he comes so hard, it's so that his jizz hits the slats in the air vent and falls through. A long glob of the voyeur's cum lands on the hand of the woman down below. The woman feels it hit her wrist, and then she looks at it, kind of puzzled. And then she looks up, and she sees this globby rope of cum dangling from the air vent. And she says, oh my god. And she looks at her partner, wide-eyed, and she smiles and says, you came all the way up to the ceiling. And then, thinking that it's her boyfriend's, she licks the voyeur's cum from her hand. It's an interesting book. I've read it a couple times now, and whenever I pick it up, I'm like, great, this is, this is what I need in my life, another erection that confuses me. Anyway, some stuff came to light after the book's release, um, suggesting that it maybe wasn't totally accurate. But rather than questioning Talise's honesty or integrity as the author, uh, the apparent mistakes in the book were, or the inconsistencies rather, were attributed to what was characterized by critics as the natural gullibility of an old man. Talise, remember, is in his 80s. The idea was that he had found a good subject, a good story, and he just kind of got too excited. He maybe looked at it and he thought, hey, here's my chance to get back into the fray with something sexy and real. And thus, in his enthusiasm, the older journalist was duped by lies that perhaps he would have easily debunked in his 50s or his 60s when he was at the top of his game, so to speak. And so, rather than being upset with Talisa's reporting, it seemed that the literati just kind of pitied him the loss of his powers. I've got a friend who's much older than me, probably roughly 50 years older. But for all of his chatty gregariousness and all of his charm, this friend of mine never reveals his exact age. I heard him make a joke one day about a certain year on the left side of mid-century, and I'm pretty sure the joke had something to do with his having been born in that year, but I never addressed it, and I, and I don't think he, he would want me to. I saw one time that he had been hanging out with somebody I, I knew of, but whom I'd never personally met. And so I asked him in passing, you know, by the way, how old is she? Because I can't, I can't really tell. My friend dismissed the question with what looked like an agitated kind of haste. And he said, I never pay attention to those things. This older friend of mine had also read Gay Talese's book, uh, The Voyeur's Motel. And when I was talking to him about it and how much I enjoyed it and, in a, in a weird way, had been turned on by it, we sagged into talking for a bit about the controversy surrounding the book's release, particularly the controversy surrounding its accuracy. My friend said, I cannot express to you how humiliating it is, how denigrating it is, the things that they're saying about Gay Talese. That he made a mistake, but oh, what can you do? He's in his 80s. No, he's a journalist, a very skilled and seasoned journalist. If he made a mistake, it should be treated as the mistake of any other journalist and not, you know, the ostensibly typical buffoonery of a geezer. My friend, as you can tell, is a bit touchy about things having to do with age, and understandably so. My dad says that one of the torments he sees his friends facing as they age into their 70s, 80s, 90s is a feeling of obsolescence. The way that, after a certain age, people stop asking your opinions about things because they feel like you're out of it, you don't really have your thumb on the pulse. It, that aging is lonely business, is kind of the portrait he paints. Now, by extension, I've got a friend named Ingrid, who I think is a couple years older than me, but she might also be a couple years younger. She's got one of those faces, you can't really tell. And I often find myself on the brink of just asking, because we're close enough that she would definitely not be offended if I did, but then I don't ask. And part of the reason that I don't ask Ingrid's age is because I can feel, my, I can feel in myself this shifting perspective about the things that she says to me when I tell myself, okay, these are the words of a 33-year-old versus these are the words of a 26-year-old. And I can't quite articulate what the difference is, but it's, I think it's something to do with the amount of credibility that I'm giving her words. And in my daily life, I don't even realize that I'm doing this kind of thing, the, uh, this, this subtle acknowledgement and, of and contextualizing of people's age. But let's, let's burrow for a moment into the, into the question of Ingrid's age. Let's say that I consciously avoid learning how old she is. Forever. I just, we go on being friends for the rest of our lives and I have no fucking idea how old she is. If I just take her entirely at the value of her words without ever paying mind to the age of the speaker, am I knowing her better than if I were to know, oh, okay, this is a 30-something-year-old, she's speaking to me, and yes, she's had more experiences than I do, so I should pay more attention? How important is it in getting to know a person that we learn how many years are behind them?
Because I notice, after all, that I never ask the age of an artist. Take, for example, Hamlet's suicide soliloquy, the to be or not to be, and that whole thing. Do we take its poetry any more or less seriously if we learn that Shakespeare wrote it at 22 or 58? Does the age of your chef or mechanic or plumber matter at all if the job gets done? No, it doesn't. But those are those situations the consumption of art or you know getting services from somebody those are not situations where you're trying to know the person i realize that this sensitivity about age uh, the idea that age is a hot topic has been codified into us from the time that we were young when we were told that it's impolite to ever ask a person their age particularly women for some reason but i always thought it was purely because a person might feel less attractive if they're made to reveal in, in front of the 30 something that they're hitting on that they are actually in their 50s for some reason, it's only now hitting me, though, that no, it's not just sex. We behave differently with people on the basis of their age. It influences how seriously we take them. Like that older friend of mine. Well, his hair is solid white. When you look at him, you cannot escape the reality of his age. Thus, whenever he's complaining about certain things, uh, like what he described as the ceaseless and deafening noise of ambulances passing his window, I describe those complaints in my head to myself as being, quote, crotchety which is a word that I would never use to describe the complaints of somebody my own age. And I think I do it to sort of dismiss or delegitimize his complaints, because a lot of those complaints have to do with things that strike me as old man gripes. He talks about the world being too noisy, about millennials being sociopaths, about decency being dead. Is it appropriate that I am contextualizing my older friend's complaints within his age? Because another necessary thing I have to mention about him is that the dude is brilliant, and I seek his counsel on just about every topic. This guy's word is fucking doctrine to me. But when he tells me, blanketly, that every professional actor between the ages of 22 and 25 smokes four packs of camels a day and snorts cocaine not just off the asses of Panamanian prostitutes, but out from their literal colon, I don't take it that seriously. And as for my friend Ingrid, Let's say, hypothetically, that she's giving me some incisive piece of advice about how to conduct myself in work or in dating or whatever. She's equally savvy on both of those fronts, incidentally. If I learn that she's actually 22 years old as opposed to 32, am I likely to think, well, her advice sounds right, but it's probably just a lucky guess. She doesn't have the experience to substantiate it. The ghostwriter I sometimes work for, he is in his 50s, and sometimes he'll ask my opinion about something, and when I pitch my thought or idea, he'll pause for a bit, considering it, and then he'll go, fuck, that's good, I hadn't thought about that. It doesn't happen often, believe me, uh, but it happens, and every time it does happen, I want to interrupt his compliment and be like, but remember, I'm a quarter century younger than you, and I know nothing. Like, I've got this weird impulse when I'm talking with older people where I want to be like, okay, but by the way, fuck everything I say. I've always felt like the argument about age being just a number was a device by which older people maneuvered younger people into bed, and I, and I paid it no mind. Uh, but as I now, in my late 20s, find myself reeled into serious, thoughtful conversations among people who are two and three times my age, and I'm realizing that I've probably been thinking about age in the wrong light my entire life. Billy McCoy was a boy who could play, you bet. Oh, how they swayed when he played on his old cornet. He's got a smile and a cute little style that's all his own. He'd mute his old cornet, and then he'd make it moan. I'm addicted to online dating, and I know that I'm addicted because a few weeks ago, while talking to somebody on Hinge during my shift at the tutoring, at the tutoring center, I muted the app so that I wouldn't keep getting distracted by notifications. I told myself that I would just wait until my break, and then after my break, I would check in to see what was there waiting to be answered. I told myself I was not going to live at the beck and call of notifications on a dating app, that the app, rather, would be at the mercy of my availability. But then, weirdly, the app starts occupying more of my headspace without notifications than it does with notifications. Because when it's buzzing me about some message, uh, when I see the little icon at the top of my screen, I know that there's something waiting for me. But if there's no buzz, and I don't see the icon alerting me to something in my mailbox, but I know that the app is still functioning, well, then there could be a message waiting for me at any moment, and I wouldn't know. There could be a new connection waiting. My future, the one, could be waiting for me in my inbox, and I wouldn't know. And so, without the notification, I start checking the app compulsively. I'm like some lab rat who keeps hitting a switch for drop after drop of, of some sugar water that never actually hydrates me. But I also like going on the dates themselves. The, the promise and the mystery of a new person, the dance of conversation. When I'm on a date, I get hypervigilant about what I'm saying, and I end up learning things about myself. I start noticing, for instance, how casually vulgar I am. I become painfully aware of how long it takes for me to communicate an idea. 
some quick and tormented arithmetic will start forming in my head where I'm like, okay, fuck, I want to answer her question, and in order to answer her question, all I have to do is tell one small story. But that one small story has nuances that are only really clear if I first tell her this other story that takes way longer to tell than the one simple anecdote that, that's actually going to empirically answer her question, if only on something of a surface level. And surely my date will just find it unconscionably weird and indulgent that the short answer to her question about, you know, what I had for dinner last night was preceded by a six-minute saga about the time I got super excited to meet one of my favorite authors and he turned out to be an asshole. I've also got this free associative leapfrog conversational collage type habit of citing things that I've read or watched or listened to in the past week, quoting writers all the time, which maybe sounds austere and learned, but believe me, it, it gets annoying. And in fact, when I was just getting hookah with Rosie last week, she voiced some kind of joking, not joking frustration with the way that rather than simply just finding the words to communicate an idea about something that she was going through, I instead told three different stories, none of them involving either one of us, and those three stories didn't all necessarily deal with what we were talking about, but, taken together, did, I think, communicate a larger point about her situation, a point that I just didn't have the words for. Which, incidentally, is, I think, the whole point of stories, and of fiction in particular, is that they communicate ideas and feelings that are otherwise too wigglesome and slippery to hold on to and just flat out tell somebody. Like, Anna Mendez has this uh, short story collection called In Cuba, I Was a German Shepherd. And there's a story in it where a father is telling his daughter stories about some outlandish shit that would happen in Cuba during hurricanes. And at one point, the, da the daughter says, that didn't happen. And after a pause, her dad says, well, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't true. But so I try to be mindful, too, of my compulsively digressive storytelling habits because I don't want to sound like this poser or snob who's like, yes, literature, Shakespeare saith schmegma. Wine helps to alleviate some of that crushing self-consciousness, but sometimes I get overzealous about the reprieve and I end up drinking too much and I get bubbly and dumb. Anyway, I've been thinking about why I yearn for these dates so much, and I think I've found something like a root cause for why I'm so addicted to dating. And it, it involves some emotional baggage, m mostly about this dread that I'm constantly feeling at the thought of being uninteresting. And I think that the dread of being uninteresting stems largely from the fact that I was a huge nerd in elementary and middle school, except I wasn't a smart nerd, so I wasn't the sort of nerd that, like, teachers liked. I was the kind of nerd who was like, hey, can we wrap up this baseball game? Jason's taking Manhattan at noon. And so once I was then of an age to start mingling with adults at family events, which I guess was probably around 12 or 13, I only ever wanted to talk about movies, and so everyone just kind of left me alone. Which isn't a knock against my family at all. I, I, I get it. It was I was very hard to talk to. Although, frankly, still, even now in my 20s, I seem to be, when I go to these functions, like, just decidedly uninteresting. Or maybe that's just me being, like, punishingly self-conscious. Whatever the case, there, there was this pairing of being, uh, this pairing of isolating experiences, first with family and then at school. But yeah, I think I realized pretty early on that the easiest way to, into a person's good graces, apart from making them laugh, is to just show an interest in them, is, is to care. And while it's probably not possible to force yourself to be interested in somebody or the stuff that's going on in their lives, there is a hack, I think, into forging a sincere and perpetual interest in the people around you. It's a little self-serving, which maybe actually makes it insincere, but it's this. And it's going to sound pale and platitudinous at first, but I promise it, it gets a little more thoughtful, so just bear with me. Just about everybody you meet has a story or a demeanor or a habit or just some general thing about them that, although perhaps not necessarily all that interesting in and of itself, can sort of ring your personal bell without your even noticing it. And I know that this sounds like such vacuous new age live, laugh, love bullshit, like, oh, everyone has a story, a rich tale to be told. But look, whether, whether it's an ethical quandary that you find yourself in or some philosophical torpor or even just the question of what to do for dinner, your free roaming conversation with another person might unexpectedly open open your mind to something. The literary critic Harold Bloom uh, said of Shakespeare's greatest plays that they have the power to illuminate the ideas that you bring to them without necessarily being about those ideas. In other words, let's say that your dog just died, and you go and you read Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is not about dead dogs, but what Bloom is suggesting is that the power of Shakespeare's language and the versatility of his metaphors are such that they will illuminate to you some of your own feelings about your dead dog or your recent retirement, or your public shaming, or your newfound poverty or wealth, whatever troubling new thing is going on in your life. And I think that the same thing happens when you talk sincerely and openly with strangers. I'll give you an example. One night at the Pinecrest Ale House a few years ago, back when I was a regular, one of the bartenders leaned over the bar as soon as I got there and nodded toward this middle-aged dude who was sitting by himself at the far end, right near the kitchen. 
The bartender's name was Emily, and she was very small and sweet, and she was engaged to a firefighter. And she said, this guy over here in the corner, he's staying at a nearby motel. Uh, he's been coming in every night, and he's super nice, but he won't shut the fuck up. We can't be rude and just ignore him, but we also can't like keep stopping what we're doing in, in order to listen. So Emily said that she would buy me a shot if I would go and sit with this guy and keep him company. So I did. Emily poured me a double, and I took it over toward the chatty dude, and I sat with him, and we talked, and it was clear right away that this dude was kind of starved for conversation. His job was he worked in, uh, in restoring very old cars, uh, like beyond vintage cars. Some millionaire in the bowels of Pinecrest had flown the chatty bar fly in from Colorado to work on some ancient car that he had just added to his collection. But so the guy talks and talks without much prompting, and he talks about the auto shop where he works and about the weather back home. But I noticed that in what feels like a straight half hour of monologuing, the dude makes only one reference to his wife. Eventually I ask him about her, I ask if she's interested in his work, like if he can go home and tell her about it, if he gets, in, gets to work on some exceptionally special kind of car or whatever. The Colorado man shakes his head once, in a curt way, and then twists his mouth and lifts his beer, and he goes quiet. I figure that the subject of his wife is a delicate one, and so I drop it. Anyway, he talks and talks and, and doesn't appear to be a particularly ruminative or curious dude, and he's smiling a lot, and he's talking at a brisk clip, um, but I'm getting a vibe like his enthusiasm is a mask for his unhappiness. The whole encounter feels in a, just sad in a way that I can't put my finger on. This guy is so eager to talk, but he has nothing interesting to say. And I notice, too, that he has, he has trouble holding eye contact. Whenever he gets on a roll with his chattering, his eyes will drift to the left of me and his nose toward the right. It's, it's kind, he gets, he's kind of spacey. Incidentally, listener, this is exactly the kind of digression I was saying I try to monitor in myself whenever I'm on a date, like these five-minute story digressions. But look, I, but I swear this is all part of the point that I'm going to make about being addicted to dates. It's, it's going to come together, just bear with me. But so the guy goes on and on, and finally, after a pause, he mentions that he was here last night at this Pinecrest Alehouse, talking with an older guy. Maybe this older, this older guy was maybe in his 70s. And apparently, when the Colorado man mentioned his line of work last night, that older man revealed that he was a retired engineer, or a manufacturer of some sort. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I do remember that the old man's focus for his entire career had been screws, or, or something like that. Something small and specific, maybe bolts or joints or something. And the older man went into great detail with this Colorado man about the evolution of screws over the course of like his 40 years in the industry. He prompted the Colorado man to consider how something as innocuous as doorknobs don't quite look today as the, the same way that they looked in 1970. And he prompted the Colorado man to consider that there's a reason for that. He prompted the Colorado man to consider that in something so ostensibly perfect and simple as a fucking doorknob, there is still room for improvement, and there will always be room for improvement. And to consider as well that even such a tiny component of that doorknob as a screw inside of the doorknob is the product of so many years of focused innovation by so many people, and it continues to change, to evolve, to improve. The Colorado man told me this story, and then he shrugged about it, clearly thinking that this older man had been a bit of a kook to, to have talked at such length and with such gravity about doorknobs and screws. Anyways, the Colorado man says his goodbyes to me, and he leaves the bar shortly thereafter. You could tell by the way he was talking about the old man he'd spoken to the night before that it had done nothing to ring his bell. But when he then told me about it, I was kind of struck silent, and I was pensive for days. I found myself doing shit like looking at the caps of pens to see how they're perforated at the top so that babies who swallow them won't choke to death, and I wondered how many little caskets across our country alone have shuttled babies into the earth because of pen caps lodged in their throat, and how much time and sorrow and money was burned before we got to this design, this simple innovation. Just poke a hole in the cap. Doorknobs and pen caps and electrical sockets and the legs of chairs, the virtual disappearance of buttons from modern devices. Consider how much evolution has gone into the shapes of headphones and earbuds and traffic lights and to-go containers. I can't say with certainty what exactly this new degree of awareness has done to me or for me, but I can say at least that it's given me a dose of perspective when it comes to the idea of ever again in my life thinking that I know even a tenth of a thing about any fucking thing that no amount of study or experience will ever likely attune me to more than a glancing familiarity with all of the things in this sprawling cosmic of whatever, of, of microdata and small moments and doorknobs and pen caps and souls. But all of that existential torpor that I went through over the next few days, it came from just striking up conversation with a decidedly boring and socially stunted stranger. This guy happened to toss this anecdote out at me, haphazardly, at almost the very last minute of our encounter, and, in so doing, totally fucked with my week. I'm fucking talking about it five years later. 
this man just happened to have in his limited repertoire of insights and stories, some little anecdote that happened to feed something in me at that moment. I, I, I was kind of lost at that time, I think. I, I think at that moment I had just finished writing my first book, and it had taken me three years, and I was super proud of it, but I was also finding that nobody wanted to publish it, and that the writing of the book, which is a sprawling and complicated and sometimes grueling process, is actually only the beginning. And now, as I was sort of coming to terms with that, here was something that spoke to my feelings of smallness and isolation. And you never know how or when that kind of shit is going to happen. Every answer, every fact, every epiphany that you come across sparks two questions, etc. And so if you keep asking questions, you keep getting questions. And your curiosity will flourish and the world around you will seem a whole lot richer for all the strange little facts and stories that you find hiding in crevices that maybe don't look like much, but they do end up playing their role in some larger and hugely important personal picture. Maybe that's a little sappy and prosaic, but my, my point is that People become interesting by merit of your going up and talking to them. They can't communicate their worthiness for your time and attention without your first giving them some time and attention. So you go up and you talk to people and you learn about them and you let them educate you on the things that they know. It becomes a win-win. They feel appreciated because you're listening so closely and asking questions and you end up learning some shit. But there's also a performative component to this avid listening thing that I end up doing on dates and at bars with people. And by, ext by extension of the performance, there's a power component. The power performance thing breaks down like this. I do a certain behavior, like asking questions of people, that I know makes them like me. And, and we all want to be liked, right? So if here I have found a behavior that makes that happen, I'm going to double down on that behavior and practice it perhaps beyond the line of sincerity. In other words, I might ask more questions than I'm actually interested in knowing the answers to. That's the performative aspect. But the power thing, let, let's say you and I are on a date. And I'm asking a long line of questions, the sort that you like to be asked, but you seldom get to answer. You get so caught up in the momentum of answering questions that you start revealing yourself. Maybe you start volunteering information that wasn't asked for and that you might not normally disclose. And maybe at the end of that date, you walk away thinking, I just totally exposed myself to somebody who said nothing in return. A bartender opened my eyes to this recently when I was I was talking with him about how I, I always like feverishly ask questions on dates, and he says, that's a defense mechanism. You're afraid that people are going to judge you, and so you, you take all these questions you ask, you think that it's a winning attribute, uh, like you're listening attentively to people, but really it's just your way of putting them on the defensive. So maybe it's not the greatest thing ever, this habit I have of asking a thousand questions of everyone. And it's almost definitely a behavior born out of a childhood that was spent mired in this conviction that I personally am probably not all that interesting and that I maybe don't warrant being the subject of anyone's attention. Which creates a, a rusty hook of self-consciousness that snags the shit out of my lip whenever I'm trying to sit down and record a podcast. And that's also, incidentally, a good part of the reason why these podcasts are all so carefully scripted and subject to so many drafts is because I'm convinced that there isn't a broken fucking chance in hell that I could hold your attention if I was just, like, riffing off the cuff. And God have mercy on the poor souls that have been tasked with editing down my radio interviews because I go all over the fucking place. Look, look, look at what a fucking mess this show is with a script. But anyway, fuck. The, the point, the point I, was getting, I was getting at about why I have come to find dating so addictive is that when I go on a date with somebody, after a sincere exchange on whatever dating app we're using, there's a feeling of this other person out there in the world, stepping out from the crowd, disrupting their schedule, and saying, you know, there's something about this Alex person that's interesting, and I believe it is worth my time to get to know him. So I will set aside that time, and I will do that. Like the artist Maria Abramovic, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who did that Minute of Silence project a few years ago where she, she would sit directly across from someone and just hold eye contact with them for, for a full minute. She did this with like an endless rotation of strangers. She would sit down, not say a word, and a stranger would come in like two paces away in a chair. They would face her and they would not say a word. And a lot of the people who sat in front of her and locked eyes, they couldn't even endure a full minute before they just broke down and started to actually weep. Which, when I first heard about those reactions, incidentally, I thought that they were kind of artsy-fartsy and over-the-top. Pavel Klein put it well for me. Think of when you go and see some charming, ephemeral, cerebral indie comedy. There will be a scene in that movie that you know is supposed to be funny, and it's clever, but it isn't actually funny. It's just clever. But then people will laugh anyway, just to acknowledge that they got the joke. And so I thought that these people who were locking eyes with Abramovic were, were kind of crying because it would suggest to the people around them that they were cultured and that they get it. They get the performance. I thought that they weren't actually moved because, come on, how can you be moved to tears by just locking eyes with a stranger? But now, living as just another mediocre adult, I now understand the emotional impact of Abramovic's project and all of those tearful reactions in a way that's almost visceral. 
because it is so incredibly, painfully, persistently clear that in this world of hustle, bustle, sound, and fury, it is almost impossible to feel like anyone might take the time to sit with and listen to you. Everyone is busy, everyone's got a lot to worry about, endless amounts of things to watch and read and hear. But that's what the dating scene is. It's sitting with someone and looking at them and listening to them. It's sharing an experience with another person. And is it upsetting now and then when they ghost you after the date? Sure, that part always sucks. And is it just as upsetting when you yourself have given a couple hours of your time to somebody who turns out to not be your type at all? Sure, that sucks too. And yet, there's something whimsical in all of that wandering, spinning the wheel, taking the chance, going out and sitting with someone and looking at them and having them look at you. Being single and navigating the world it feels to me sometimes like floating out at sea by yourself. It's endlessly silent except for the chop of the surf. Hours on hours and days on days of solitude, reflection, mania, desperation, doubt. And every now and then, just for a moment, your shoulder bumps into another floating person. And you aren't allowed to touch them. And you don't even really get to talk. But for one blessed moment, you get to look at each other. And you can take from the encounter the comfort of knowing, at the very least, that you're not the only person out here. And that is... Not nothing. And there goes another episode. I don't know why this one feels like it, it went completely to shit, although I, I do seem to... I record these outros always... Um, after I've finished e editing the episode, usually on Fridays. So everything is pretty much done, and I, I just have to tag this on to the rest of the finished product. Like, everything is edited and packaged. So, like, I come into this, into recording this outro with a solid idea of everything that's in the episode. And there's just something about this. It took, kind of like the last one, it took a crazy long time to do. Um, it was, like, more meticulously scripted than usual. And yet, the finished product just feels, like, not, almost not messy enough. All the doubt and shame that surrounds like the finished product of something doesn't really inhibit me from putting it out there anymore. And I think it's because I know that like as soon as it's out the door, fine, thank God, it's out of my life and now I can sort of move on wholeheartedly to the next thing. Whereas if I don't, if I tentatively finish something and I think that it really sucks and then I withhold it from uh, you know publication on the blog, then it sits in my mind for a while and I keep thinking like, oh, I should go back to that, I should revise it, I should try to improve it. Whereas if, if I can honestly say that it's my best effort and it's still not meeting my expectations, I might as well just put it out there. Because even if it's not, I don't know, particularly interesting in and of itself, it might kind of lend something, some added shade of something to the larger picture of, you know, the 10 blogs preceding it or the 10 blogs to follow. On the college campus where I work, every, no, every October, there's um, sort of a clearance sale from the library where they have, you know, some old video games, uh, mostly books, but also like t-shirts and, and just random shit. It's like a big yard sale. And it's kind of frustrating in that when I, when I first started working there, um, they had more judicious pricing. The books were kind of priced in accordance with what the average book buyer would say they are worth. So, for example, a World Atlas from 1982 that's sort of streaked in coffee stains and yellowed all around the edges, that would be $1 or maybe 50 cents because they're just trying to get rid of it. They'd feel guilty about throwing it in the garbage and they're hoping that you'll take it off their hands and do something with it. This year, and I think for the past two, for the two years prior to this one, every time I go down to that sale, every single book is $5. Whether it's a brand new hard copy of, I don't know, the latest James Patterson or if it's a 1982 Atlas, they're both $5. So this year when I got to campus and I was on my way to work and I saw that the big sale was going on, um, I wasn't really interested in going, but then I went down in the company of a colleague. I was browsing the books and I found, like, it was like one of those rare kind of treasure finds. It was a massive, it's a massive like five or six hundred page compendium of um, essays by Andy Rooney. Andy Rooney used to have this little segment on 60 Minutes where he would just basically read one of his newspaper columns aloud. And the, the, the columns were about everything, every, just random things in daily life. And he was like a professional observer. It's like light humor writing that you take with your morning coffee when you're not particularly conscious. And what it's just the voice. The voice was so consistent. And he was just kind of like the friend who was waiting for you in your newspaper with, with a new message, you know, three times a week. And I'm reading them, and they're all pretty much the exact same length. In fact, they're kind of the, the exact length that I like for the Thousand Movie Project blog post to be. And, and, and the collection spans, I don't know, 30 years or something? And some of the pieces are more interesting than others, naturally, but they're all 
of a pretty solid quality, and I think it's just the voice, the consistency of it. So whether he's talking about the clutter that's accumulating in his garage or the insecurity concerning his, you know, the, the pounds that he's putting on, the fact that at the age of 60, he's just crossed 200 pounds. It's kind of it's kind of nice taken all together. And as I've been kind of dipping into it over the past couple weeks, um, reading two or three passages at a time, it also makes for terrific toilet reading. So if you ever if you want to pick this up like off eBay just to store it in the bathroom, I think you'll find it pays dividends. But I'm reading it and thinking like this is so this is so pleasant and this is kind of what I would like the Thousand Movie Project the the personal entries on ThousandMovieProject.com to be like. I don't know. I don't know what I want with the blog. I don't know what I want with the podcast. I think part of I think part of what I'm I'm shooting for is just stability and consistency. Um, I I don't know why I cringe to admit that I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast as regularly as I do. I'm seeing as like I don't know three and a half million people listen to it on a regular basis, but I've been listening to his stuff a little more pointedly over the past few days and I've been reading up about like what his schedule is like, what his work schedule is like, and he just seems so so extremely busy at the age of I guess I think it's 52 or 51. Like he he works out in the morning and then he re- he goes and records his podcast and then goes and he does, you know, sometimes two shows a night of of stand up and then speckled across that he does things like um sports commentary for UFC. This came to mind mainly when he was just recently talking to um, Kevin Smith. Smith was on the show to promote Jane Silent Bob Reboot, and they were both talking about how extremely busy they are and how thrilled they are to be so busy because they're doing something that they really love that's really, well, apart from being remunerative, it's, it's just fulfilling. And it's also performative, and it's, it's, it's engaging, it's educating. It's, it's, it just seems like these two guys lead the kind of life that I would want to lead, not necessarily doing the things that they do, but I would, I just want to cultivate a few things that I really like that, you know, afford me enough money that I can make a living and then I can just do it all the time and feel like this perpetual sense of growth. Because when you look at like Joe Rogan's podcast and the diversity of guests that he has on, there are comedians, there are physicists, there are writers, there are athletes, and he's having these sustained three hour conversations with them. And you have to imagine that like, after so many weeks of so many long, in-depth conversations with such a variety of people, you feel kind of enriched. And and so I, I would imagine that at the end of every successive year of podcasting, that Joe Rogan, given the consistency, the frequency with which he does it, and again, the diversity of his, of his guests, there's probably some a feeling of having achieved some new plane of like self-awareness or just, I don't know, he probably just feels like he's always growing. And the same is probably the case with Kevin Smith. He has talked in the past about how he takes gigs like directing episodes of Supergirl or The Flash. Every now and then he steps into some sort of assignment or some kind of activity that pushes him out of his comfort zone because he knows that he needs material to talk about on the podcast and in these um, sort of live public engagements. My point is that he he kind of stays open-minded and he's constantly active because he's constantly having to observe things, constantly having to accumulate material for his own creative ventures. And that, I think, has been one of the upsides of Thousand Movie Project is that, especially with the attempted daily blog, I haven't even posted, I've written, I've written like dozens in the past month, but I haven't posted a single one in the past month. But that obligation to constantly come up with material for the, for the podcast and for the blog is, um, it makes me more aware than usual. And now um, it seems like it happens more and more often with every successive month that in the course of a single day, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be like stopped by three or four things that I see taking place on the sidewalk or in the mall or the coffee shop or the bar, stuff that I realized would lend itself to a, an interesting kind of micro-narrative that I could that I could use in the blog or the podcast. And it's the kind of thing that would not have gripped me, you know, a couple months prior. It's kind of, sh- it's, it's just, it's just sharpening my senses. I, I think not in a literal sense of like, I hear better, but an interesting turn of phrase that somebody mentions over my shoulder at the bar might, you know, catch my attention faster now than it would have a while ago. Anyway, that's it for this week. The next episode will be a lot better. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and to check out our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can always throw some money at Thousand Movie Project on PayPal or Venmo, or you can buy one of our two ebooks, Horny Nuns and The Ballad of Felicio Knightley, which both cost a buck and are both available on Amazon.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.